When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey gang, it's the Nerds Podcast number 606. 606 episodes of the podcast. How did this happen? Well, I guess it's very obvious. I've, I did 606 of them. But uh, it still blows me away. The podcast in my head still feels new. Is that weird? Do you feel that way? Uh, comment in the threads on the site if you do. This episode is Alex Borstein, who you may have initially seen on Mad TV, and, but then is also uh, the voice of Lois on Family Guy, and and has a super hilarious show called Getting On, which is currently on HBO. Uh, it is about nurses in the geriatric ward of a hospital, and they've made it funny. They've made it extremely funny, but Alex is an incredible improviser and uh, and also just super funny performer, and you should watch her. or But but listen to this first, and then you can watch that. I'm sure she'd be okay with me saying, like, listen to her on the podcast first, then watch Getting On. Uh, it is the Nerdist Podcast number 606 with Alex Borstein. Now entering Nerdist.com. ordered these couches that cost more than a vehicle and I didn't know it didn't include the fabric. <laughs> oh, he did. Oh, yeah, no. He I- showed up to show me the fabrics and I said, oh, I like this, 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 and this. And then I got the separate invoice and went, what? Oh, yeah, that sucks. I'm not fucking paying that. No, she's been pretty cool about She's very cool about, like, here's what everything will cost, and here's this, and here's that. So. I guess I didn't ask the right questions. I don't know, dude, but... They can sort of be like, uh, yeah, you can sort of get <laughs> fucked over sometimes. Yeah, and I'm just, I can't I can't you do don't it. have to. I can't do it. Don't. It just makes me want to throw. I'm 100% in support of this, okay. even though my opinion carries no weight with you whatsoever. Thank you. You have a chewy notebook. I, I do have a chewy notebook. I like your opinion. Okay, good. <laughs> what, that's all it took? That's all it took. I wish America was that easy. That's all it took. Guys, I have a chewy notebook. Okay. That's Everything you say took. is fine. How's it going? It's going. Yeah. I made it here. You did. I'm here. I parked. There was no problem with parking. 
which is a very big deal in Los Angeles. It really is. It really like it parking and most other most other cities don't really understand this. Parking really determines a lot of what you do in this town. This is like, oh, you want to come over? How's the parking? It's not very good. Oh, I, I don't think I can't. Yeah, people are very weak in Los Angeles about parking. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> Angelinos are very, uh, they're deterred by many things. To, anything will give Weather, them an excuse to not leave the house. Weather? Yeah. Traffic? Parking? Yes. Um, agoraphobia. Uh, uh, what else? Um, uh, smog alerts? Smog alerts are very bad. Mm-hmm. Oh, the wet, the air. Really? Because mm-hmm. it's always kind of bad. So it's slightly more bad than it would otherwise be. Yeah, I uh, I don't mind having thick, <laughs> thick, uh, painful air. No, it's not that bad. Mm-mm. It's not that bad at all. I mean, you know, you go outside, maybe don't run outside a whole bunch. I don't run as a general rule. Okay, good. Yeah, that doesn't happen. What if someone's chasing you? Nope, not even then. Really? Yep. You got me. I don't. <laughs> not... I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. Because they're going to get me anyway, and then I look <laughs> stupid. Then I'm caught and slow. <laughs> gotcha. So it's just like, why bother with the illusion? Right. I could be caught and so cool I didn't even bother to run. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I totally appreciate that. I can't... I like running on a treadmill, Ugh. but I don't... <laughs> is, that a, is that a joyful... You're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> better than running outside that's the worst why is that the worst i just it's just it's like a that's habit trail it is it is that is the sign of someone in like neuroses you think so i do i just like i just like feel it just makes me feel better it does yeah because then your heart pumps and your blood flows and then you feel then you sort of feel you know here's what i'll do i will take the stairs up to my condo okay Instead of the elevator? Yep. How many floors? Eh, about three. Okay. So it's like a walk-up, basically, for you? A little, like... little bit of a walk-up. I'll, I'll do that. I'm willing to do that. that Unless there's reasonable. a kid with me. If I've got a kid with me, then we take the elevator. Oh, okay. Do you have kids? I do. How many kids? Two of them. Two kids? Mm-hmm. And what are their, what's their age range? Six and two. Six and two. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a spread. Yeah. That's quite a spread. So the six-year-old is kind of... Getting self-sufficient yet, so you can focus a little more on the two-year-old? Yeah, that was, that's, that's what I thought would happen. But what happens is then the six-year-old is cognizant enough to be extremely jealous of the two-year-old mm. and to regress to the point of being more difficult than the two-year-old. Just to times. get it more attention. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes. Right. So if they were closer in age, they'd probably bond a little bit more. And I don't know. They definitely bond, but I just feel like he's... It's such a perfect age for manipulation that it's working against me a little bit. And does it work? Are your kids more powerful? Uh, yeah, they're powerful. They're powerful. They win every time. <laughs> I threaten to take things away and then forget to. Of course. Yeah. Well, you always want to be, I would imagine, I don't, I don't have kids, but I would imagine you want to be cool. You know, like you want to be the cool parent, but at a certain point, you know that kids will take advantage of that and push boundaries. And it's like, God damn it, I wanted to be cool, but now you're putting me in a position where I can't be cool. And you don't want to have to, following through with the shit that you threaten is hard. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. And I'm going to, okay, he didn't want to get dressed this morning to leave. I said, listen, if you don't stop drawing, I'm going to take those markers. Well, you need to get dressed. 
I need you to get dressed. When you don't listen to me, it makes mommy feel frustrated. Mommy needs you to get dressed. Can you get dressed for mommy? Mommy needs you to... Meanwhile, right, 10 minutes ago, I said I was going to take the markers away. It's now we're 15 minutes into the argument. I haven't taken the markers away. Then I take the markers away, and guess what? Now I got to take the markers away. And, and when I want him to leave me alone and color and do what he's got to do because mommy needs to get... Now I don't have the markers. If it makes you feel any better, I was suddenly very motivated to get dressed. Were you? Yeah. Aww. So We are naked right now. <laughs> we just thought it would be spruce up the podcast. I mean, By you guys can't see this listening to this audio podcast, but we can feel the energy. Yeah. Yeah. And it is chilly in here. It's very cold. Which doesn't bode well for you. No. <laughs> but... Well, I'm seated behind a desk. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, was, I, was a little, I was a little embarrassed. I mean... Listen, you can make all the excuses that you want, but ultimately people are like, eh, but still. I know. You know I know. S- still down there. Where did you, did you, did you start at, <clears throat> did you start at Groundlings? I did not. I started, well, I did a sketch comedy group here in LA called Acme Comedy. Oh, you were at Acme, not, not Groundlings. You yeah, were at Acme. Acme. I know Acme very, very, very well. Oh, yeah, I used wow. to do uh, stand-up shows there years ago. Acme is, uh, that's where Corolla started. That's and right. Garmin and all those guys. And then there was another, <clears throat> the group of people that I knew when I started doing stand-up in LA that were in Acme were the, uh, the Jeff Lewis's and Jamie Kaler's of I'm the world. very dear friends with both of them. So I, Kaler I haven't seen in <clears throat> ages, but he used to run the Thursday night stand-up show at O'Brien's uh-huh. while he was a bartender. Yes, he was. And I did, when I used to drink, I used to go get drunk and do stand-up there on Thursday nights and uh, he worked as a bartender way longer than he should have, but he he just made so much money. I know. And he had such a and he had this great rent control apartment in Santa Monica. And he was perfect for it. He's just this good looking Irish guy. Yeah, who, yeah, he was perfect. Really, just a good good nature. Just like he has a, a father now. I know he's a father now. He like moved to the valley and it's got crazy, married and had right? a kid. And, it's crazy. You know, now he's a now he's he's a, got this great butterball baby. Oh, that's She's great. He's got this big old. Giant moon face. She's really cute. He was. Uh, he's funny because he um, he was a Navy guy. I know. And veteran. was stationed in San, in San Diego, and didn't really start doing comedy until like late, like in his thirties. Yeah. But uh, but he just has these great stories about like I mean when he was the Navy it was like there wasn't really a lot going on. So right. it was sort of like a fun time, or maybe that's not true. Like actually, frat house. Maybe he actually, maybe he actually went over for the first Persian Gulf War, but I don't. But it wasn't. I don't know if he ever actually. I don't know if he was in in any action. I don't know. I don't care about him that much. <laughs> to actually, you know, say when I say how are you, like I don't really want. You don't want he, an answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't want to hear about. No, all him and I actually did one of one of the favorite sketches I did at Acme. Him and I did that he wrote. And it was him showing up drunk, a boyfriend showing up drunk to, I was playing his girlfriend's house. And it was just a very real scene. It was so many things there were really large and broad, you know, comedically with wigs and ridiculous sketches. I'm an old lady at the market. <laughs> you know, and, and he, um, he wrote this very real sketch that was, that, that was very bittersweet, you know, a drunk guy showing up trying to make things right with an ex-girlfriend. And, and it was always one of my favorite things to do. And, and so what uh, was acne more, um, was it more character centric? Everything. Yeah. You know, you were encouraged to kind of build characters and a lot of people, the goal was they wanted to audition for SNL or, right. you know, it ended up mad TV or whatever. But, um, 
everyone kind of did a little of everything. It depended on their strengths. Some people wrote news sketches, you know, it was like a news desk. Some people wrote uh, the same character every single time. They Every time they'd put up new material, it was their same kind of recurring character, whether it worked before or not. Right. <laughs> well, and because and for the longest time, Groundlings really had a stranglehold on, like, that's the sketch comedy group. I mean, I know there were a lot of sketch comedy groups in, in L.A., yeah. but not all of them had, like, an institution. And, you know, this was obviously pre-UCB. Um, and Acme was really started to kind of really establish itself as a, as a real entity. But it, then it... I don't know what I mean. I drive by it all the time. It's still the theater's still. I mean, it's, it never took off. It never became. It, it always felt like I went from Acme, which was always compared to Groundlings, to Mad TV, <laughs> which was always compared to SNL. Like always in the shadow of something, and um, it never exploded or took off. And a lot of people came from Acme, especially that went into writing. A lot of people yeah. and radio, and um, but yeah, it just never blossomed the same way. I mean, maybe there's just room for one institution kind of like, like Groundlings. I know a lot of people that went to Acme went because they were fed up with Groundlings. Right. I had no experience with Groundlings. I'd never been there, but I heard from people that it was like the other actors vote you in or out of mm-hmm, groups mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people felt like it was just very political and right. women felt upset they couldn't get ahead because other women were, which I don't know, but because I never experienced it, but I kind of, I did like Acme and that my brother and I signed up at the same time to take classes and I liked that there was one dude who ran it whether you agreed with him or not it was just his call whether right. a sketch got in or you got in or it was just simple it was clean and I you know I got to immediately perform I took one improv class and then I auditioned for the troupe and I got in the not the main company but the next mm-hmm. And just immediately got to write material and put it up on stage. So it wasn't like months or years of classes. It's a good space, too. I really liked the space. And and, and so there would, um, I would do stand up shows there every once in a while, or like J.K. Van Stratton would do his talk show there and go do stand up on that. Yeah. And then up above Farfalla next door was, you know, F2. like F2 or, you know, room, it used to be called Room 5 or uh-huh. something. And then, That's right. So there were like little, there were stand up shows up there too. So it was like, it really, it started to really kind of pop. And it's like, oh, downstairs at Acme, and then upstairs you could do shows up here. But then, I don't know, I just don't know what happened. I mean, and then I Corolla and Sweeney, the guy who ran Acme right. for years, that they invested in Farfalla. They bought that restaurant, and it was called Amalfi. Yeah, Amalfi. Is they it might still, there? still they I think might it might still, still be Amalfi. It. Yeah, Does Adam I, still have that restaurant? Yeah. I think so. Really? Yeah, he's doing podcasts there every Wednesday for a while. I didn't know that. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Adam, Adam, Carolla's one of those guys who's just like the secret billionaire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I remember going to his house. I've known Adam for 15, no, more, like 20 years. And, uh, and maybe like five years ago, I went to his house and I knew he was doing well, but he just had like, it's like his car collection. It's like, where, yeah. where do you get the money for a fucking DB9 yeah. and a, a, next to like a 1968 Ferrari? And those are just the ones that are not in your shop. But isn't that and cool? And you have a shop. But isn't that cool? Someone that's just quietly. Yes, it's amazing. Just quietly collecting money and going about his business and creating. I mean, you know, what he did with his podcast is pretty huge and, and you would, you creating would never, his own way you would never know i mean like and if you know i mean if you've listened to the podcast now if you listen to adam now you probably have an understanding but for the longest time when adam was just sort of like man i'm just that guy 
that no people didn't understand that he has exquisite taste. Like mm-hmm. if you see, because he redo, you know, like he would just redo his own houses. Yeah, and they were gorgeous. And I always thought that was such an interesting disparity between the guy that people, you know, like that's his shtick. It know. is the shtick, right? It is. But he used to. Uh, I mean, when I when I first started working at K Rock, he was just calling in and doing characters because mm-hmm. Kimmel was like, "Here's the number, call yeah. in." But but I mean, even though. So going back to what you said, you know, even though Acme may not have become an institution, it de- a lot of people who went on to do things. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a. I that. learned. I learned so much there. I mean, I, I. I. It really helped me write. At the time, I was working in advertising when I was started at Acme, and and I was a copywriter. So that really helped too. That was kind of like copywriting was Twitter for me at the time. It uh-huh. was like having to be succinct. You only have so many characters, one line in a print ad. You want to try to sell something. What's the best way to write this? And so it was really great training for, for comedy writing, you know, because that's what comedy writing is, is being really quick, really succinct. It's like, really adverti- clear, it's like advertising. And you're trying to persuade the audience yes. to feel a certain way. So it was really great training. And then, and then Acme kind of continued that. And then it was putting it up in front of people. You know, in advertising, I'd get frustrated. Oh, client didn't like my line. No one bought my headlines. No one liked my things. That's funny. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, at Acme, I would get up on stage and find out, oh no, I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) That (laughs) was not good. That was not funny. And here's why. And so it was the best training you could kind of get. Was Steve Callahan at Acme? Yes. You know, Steve Callahan was my orientation counselor at UCLA. Oh my goodness. And he, I was in the, I was in a stand-up comedy club at UCLA and Steve was the president and I worshiped him because <laughs> at orientation, he was the funniest counselor uh-huh. and he was the person that sort of, when I had always kind of wanted to do stand-up, like he was my gateway and he was president of this stand-up comedy group. He was your gateway drug. He was my gateway drug, and uh, and I've I've known I mean I've known Steve since I was seventeen years old, and so yeah, and I haven't known him that long, but I, I've known him for about twenty years. And he Steve, just for people who may or may not know, is I don't he's ascended the ranks on Family Guy. Like yeah, he's one a, of the showrunners. He's one of the showrunners now, and he was you know, I remember when he when he started writing on that show. You know, I mean, he's been he's been on the show since he started as a writer's assistant. Right. I knew him from Acme. I had uh, done the done the show. I did the pilot presentation for Family Guy, recorded it. And then after Fox said we're picking this show up, they said, are we sure about these voices? Let's make sure. And then Seth had to re-audition like every woman on the planet. And I almost lost the game. Like he had to do his, you know, they wanted to make sure. Are you sure these are so they keep auditioned everyone in the universe and then came into the room at family guy with a tape recorder and played these two voices. And Steve Callahan was one of the writer's assistants at the time in the room and heard it. And he knew immediately that it was my voice and had to shut up, you know, kind of backed out. No one wanted his opinion anyway, but, um, you know, Seth kind of rooted for me and I, I won the job. Well, that's good. But yeah, Steve. He's such a good guy. We've known each other for a long time. He had this, he had this bit that I remember from college where it was something about like uh it was something like a a town crier but in ancient Egypt mm. and he comes out and reads the scroll and goes 
Fish, fish, man with a cane and a craned neck. I don't know. That looks like a jackal. Like he basically right. was just like doing hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics. And uh, and so if you the next time you see Steve, if you say fish, fish, man with a cane and a craned neck, he'll it'll like it'll warp his brain. Not you... much changed at Acme. He did very similar pieces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did this one bit together that was Smitty's Believe It or Don't, and it was just like a. Nonverbal bit because he's about seven feet tall. He's very tall. Yes, I'm five feet tall, and we just did this bit as though we were in like we were circus freaks, and it was just music and a drum roll. And he would stand there and put his arms out, and I would just walk under his arms. <laughs> this huge finish, and I'd walk under his legs. Ta da! It was it was just comparing his great height and my minuscule height. So at this point, are you? you uh, I assume it's super efficient. Or you just go in, read, go home. At Family Guy? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty efficient. You know, I mean, I know the character inside and out, so there's no, there's never really a question about how I'm going to deliver something. I mean, there's times Steve is in the room directing and uh, in the booth. There's some times where he says, oh, you know, when, when we pitched this, because when I used to write on the show, I, it, there was no question because I was in the writer's room. I mm-hmm. knew exactly the intention. But sometimes if I can't make it to a table read and then I get in the booth... Sometimes I'll get something wrong. Like, oh, no, 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 no. The intention was, and they'll let me know. But for the most part, it's pretty um, efficient. How long did you write on the show? Oh, a long time. I mean, the whole first, you know, we were on the air, and then, what was that, 98-ish I was writing on the show way back in the beginning. Then we got canceled. Then we came back in April of 2004. Are you shitting me? That show's been on that long? Mm-hmm. It's like 16 years? Yeah. Well. Oh our shows take nine months to make, so we were working on them in 97, 98. I think it aired 99. So still, it's, still, it's still a long time. It's still a long it's time. It's still, still the 1900s. I know. Here's how long we've been on the air. When we were first recording, Mila Kunis had to be driven to and from because she didn't have a driver's license. And now she's got her own baby. She had her, she had her learner's permit. She was 15 and a half. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> And now she's got a baby sucking off her teeth. She does. Yeah. Do you have pictures of that? Uh, yes. Okay, great. I do. Mm-hmm. I'll show Everything you seems in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there they are. Um, does it? Does it? I'm always curious when you have a recurring character on a sketch show, as you did, that is a big hit character, and you do it a lot. Mm-hmm. Is there a? At what point are you like? You don't really want to. But they're like, but you gotta. You know what? It wasn't that I ever didn't want to do the Miss Swan character. It was that, oh my God, there are four other sketches that me and these other writers came up with that is so funny. Can we do this? And when it came time for them to choose, if they only had one slot, they'd always want the recurring character. Of so course. You were bummed because you, you always want to do something new. You want to do the next exciting, fresh thing. You know, it's, it's, that was the hardest time I had doing stand-up. Why I never really did a lot of it was I couldn't stand repeating the same material too often. I, it was, it was hard. It was just brutal for me to hear my own voice saying the same words again. And that's, yeah, that's funny. It's like, well, when a lot of people start doing stand up, they're like, I'm never going to repeat the same joke again. And you go, well, good luck with that. Yeah. Because part of the stand up process is honing and whittling and yeah. honing and whittling as opposed to, you know, I mean, it's certainly, I don't know what the turnover rate for sketches was at Acme, but it's a high it's a high turnover rate. Yeah. You're just fucking Oh, absolutely. Yeah, rifling through as much as possible. It's 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 so much work. And uh but anyway, that was kind of that was how I felt with, with some of the but, you know, the recurring 
swans that we did, I mean, I really had a blast doing it. I mean, we started doing some weird, surreal <laughs> stuff with her. And we did like this one connected storyline one season and had Dennis Hopper and Susan Sarandon in as guesters and Tony Shalhoub. It was just so random and weird <laughs> and wonderful. Do you miss doing sketch? You know, what I... Ever since doing Mad TV, like, I can't even watch sketch anymore. I don't know why. I got so burnt out. The thing I miss is the immediacy of Acme or Mad TV where you come up with something that week, something's pertinent right then and there, and you have a really fun idea, and you get to do it. And you just put it up. All of a sudden, you pitch it. You write it. There's a set built. There are costumes made. And there you are doing this weird random idea you had or some other brilliant writer on the staff had or I miss that the immediacy of it now you're I'm in a world of like doing a lot of tv development or writing feature films that never get made right never happen there's two years of developing something before it's finally said like oh it's it's not going anywhere <laughs> so it's, you know, I, I haven't heard anything about that thing for a while yeah yeah so so I, I miss that. that 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 was really fun the immediacy of it yeah, the film, the fi- <laughs> that script, that whole script writing. You know, we're recording this. You don't have to take notes. No, I make okay. him write everything down word okay. for word. All right, it uh, keeps him on his toes. It's interesting. Um, it's uh, it's uh, like that's that script writing business where you can just sell a bunch of scripts, and then none of them ever get made. It's almost like it's, the script almost becomes like a weird cousin that you had where you're like, I haven't seen that guy in ages. I'm like, I think he might be dead. I don't know. You know, and it's heartbreaking. I'll pick something up after, you know, from three years ago and, Oh, I don't remember this piece of shit. And then you read it and say, wait, that, this is actually really funny. There's really great stuff in <laughs> Nothing's here. Nothing's ever going to happen with it. That was like a year of work, and it's just sitting there. And, they, and, and, the, and the film companies can get really – they just get like weirdly territorial about stuff. And you're like, can I do something with this? No. Well, yeah. how come? Well, it's ours. Yeah, I know, but you're not going to do anything with it. Well, we could. Are you? No. Yeah. But – Or you have to pay to get it back. Right. You know, or – I remember one time, similarly, I was like under contract – was doing this pilot. It was dead. It was not going anywhere. And someone wanted me to audition for something else coming up. You know what? It was like a, it was a Louis C.K. project. It was when he was doing a network uh, pilot. I auditioned for that pilot. Yes. I know exactly. Bruce, um, the Drew, oh, the showrunner from Drew Carey was showrunning that. I remember that. Pilot. It was a I couple know. of years. It was, a, it, was a, it was like 2004 or five, maybe? It was, maybe. A while, it was a while ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. And, 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 I was, you know, called, oh, do you want to audition for this? I said, yeah. And then someone said, oh, you know, I don't know if you can because you're technically still under contract for that pilot. Oh, but it's dead. It's not, you technically can't, we, we can't even have you into audition if you're not out of. Well, okay, let me, let me, let me call the producer on that and see if it's cool. Yeah, I want to audition for this thing. Oh, okay, well, you're still under contract. So if you want to, technically, we bought you out for this amount. If you want to audition for that, you need to pay us back. So I had to pay back. 60 grand of my contract for this thing to audition and the audition went nowhere. Oh, God damn it. So I was out 60 grand to that audition. That sucks. Isn't I, that terrible? I had the same exact thing happen where I had done a sitcom in like 98 and then the studio was like, well, it was one of the famous holding deals of the 90s. We are like, we want to put you in a holding deal and it sounds like a lot of money. 
at once, but then you realize like, oh, it's really not that much because you can't work for a year. They hold you for 30 they years. They hold you yeah. and then after taxes when you get a lump sum of money and then commissions and everything, it's it's really not that – it's genuinely not that much money at all. And uh, and so the deal hadn't been closed yet and I was going to test for a – Jake Johansson had a pilot. He had a pilot every year for a while and I was supposed to test for it. And I thought I had a really good shot and they were like, oh, well, you can't test because – this other holding deal is going to happen. I'm like, but it's not signed yet. And he's like, yeah, but they don't want to. And so finally, uh, they were like, well, we'll try to get you out of it. So <laughs> the test came and went. And then afterwards they were like, okay, we got you out of the thing. I'm like, yeah, but yeah. now I can't now. So like, oh yeah, well now it's too late. So yeah, I lost both of them. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, it is. But that's, that's why when you do get a gig, the pay seems, oh, God, you make so much money in this business. But it's because you've spent 20 years yeah. dealing with nothing happening, nothing selling, getting kicked around that way. It's back pay. It's, it really is. It's kind of <laughs> making up for all that. I'm glad, though. I'm kind of glad that uh, – well, let me ask you. Are you. Well, I don't know. How many – when you look back at your – at the sort of the path – were there a lot of, uh, I don't want to call them failures, but just failed pilots, failed shows, failed things along the way? Yeah. I don't think I have as many as a lot of people. A lot of people are like the pilot king and queen. You know, people do every year they're cast in pilots. And um, I had one that I wrote and developed. It was the first one. I co-wrote it with Maya Forbes. It was called Life at Five Feet. And, uh, you know, it was just as good as anything else that they were making. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, Oh, it was so great or it was, but it came out fine. and was pretty good. And we came really close and then they said, Oh, I think we're going to, we want to reshoot the pilot. We want to do it for mid season. So we had to fire people and then recast it and then getting ready to reshoot. It. And then all of a sudden they pulled the plug, <laughs> nothing happened. And like they went as far as to fly us to New York to, they were going to announce the mid. So that was one that was kind of the big first after post mad TV, I think, um, that was what I did, that pilot. That was 2002. Yeah, and it's, it's, <clears throat> failed. And then I did this other pilot once called The Thick of It. That was a British import. That yeah. I think now Veep is kind of, it's Armando Iannucci. It's kind of well, the, thick the same of it, baby. The Thick of It was Peter Capaldi, who is now the the doctor. Like he's the new on Doctor Who. Like mm-hmm. he, The Thick of It was a huge British show. Yeah. But, it, but it's also... And they tried to do one here in the U.S. and it was Mitch Hurwitz wrote it and Christopher Guest directed it. Wow! It was really exciting. Um, cast was really cool and it just didn't go. Which God, I one hope of those they, shockers. Hope someone posts that somewhere. It would be fun. I wish I wish that Netflix or someone would just acquire a bunch of failed pilots. The pilot channel because there must be. I guarantee you. I mean, obviously, there, there's a lot of obvious stinkers out there, but there's probably some really fucking good shows that just. Oh, but don't you want to see the stinkers? Yes, I want I mean, to see I'm both. Trying to see that. The stinkers will be fun, and the good shows will be heartbreaking because you're like, that didn't. Because you know that there's, it didn't test well with some weird demographic in right. a Vegas mall, right? Or that they, uh, or it was some political reason, like oh, the executive didn't want this because he had, you know, it's like. There's a, a, a lot of stuff gets a lot of stuff gets snuffed out the way like uh, if a new if a new lion comes in a pride and basically just like smother like just like chokes out all of the cubs that aren't his. That's exactly, exactly what happens in, in the television exactly. business. Exactly, and it's just as bloody. It's very bloody. Just as bloody. Yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, it's not surprising that, that performers can turn out to be real 
you can get real fucked up from all of the like stopping and the starting and the never feeling stable and the hopefulness. You know, you go in to do a, a test for an audition and you have to sign the contract as though the gig is yours. And so you see so all you're the signing deal points. this for five years. Oh, look at how much I'm going to be making. Look yeah. at year five. I'm a millionaire in year five. And then it doesn't even matter. They chose none of you from the audition. They just offered it to someone. That, right. You know. Oh, we went with Selma Blair. Yeah. What? <laughs> All right. Yeah, we just gave it to her. Well, you know, the fucked up thing about the, the business, too, is that because of, uh, because I think because of guild rules, they have to audition a certain number of people, maybe, even if they intend to offer it to someone anyway. So they, Oh, interesting. They, I think they can... I'm pretty sure this is true that if they uh, if so we are paying the Screen Actors Guild dues we're paying them to yank us around <laughs> in a way here are my dues make me show up somewhere for now, no fucking reason I can't prove that this is the case it's something I heard once so if this is ah. not true but it's it's one of the reasons why I the reason that I the reason that I'd heard that is because someone said oh well they want to offer you this thing but they can't because they have to audition a certain number of people first and then I ended up not getting it. Every time they tell you, like, this part is yours, yeah. it's, n- it's not ever yours. And they're looking for an Alex Borstein type. <laughs> they but could not just Alex have Borstein. The original one. <laughs> yeah. Why, uh, why would you want the type? I don't know. The... But you're on a show now that is. I am. That, that people are liking a lot. So that must yeah. be nice. You know, it's really nice. It's, it's, it's not even just that people are liking. I mean, I've had. The, I'm so lucky to have that experience with Family Guy, but. This is like a dream. This is this is what you kind of think only happens to other people that you're playing this character that is really fun, really flawed, really messed up, really rich and it's especially rare like with female characters. It's just the coolest. You know, at, at my age you just start going like, "Okay, I'm going to be a mom on a sitcom or I'm going to now I'll be on the Disney Channel and I'll have a kid with magic powers or something." I don't know <laughs> what the fuck. <laughs> kid that fucking farts gold or something i don't fucking know but <laughs> but gold I was, shards yeah i was so so happy to have something that's just still i'm kind of still playing a kid myself which is rare i'm sorry i'm going back to the gold charts which is the name of the family should we pitch it yeah the gold charts they're jewish and the one kid shits out gold. And being Jewish, they're I mean, they, happy about it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the circumstances are, but I feel like they can't just the kid can't just shit out gold at will. Like, well, something. it's based on the the Golden Goose, <laughs> right? By Hans Christian Andersen. That's right. So, so we it's, will a, it's a reframing of that. On that. Yeah, it's yeah. a reboot of it that is. story. It is where the kid, where the goose is now a small child. That's right. Mom and Dad love the child, but Grandma wants to cut the fucker open. <laughs> And just get go straight to the nuggets. <laughs> I'm writing this tomorrow. This is the gold charts. It's it's it definitely it definitely shit. Or it, at the very least, it could be a flashback in a Family Guy episode. This is true. I mean, that's might be a tough pitch of the Disney Channel. I don't know. You don't think so? I don't know. All those kids, the Disney Channel. What's so funny to me is they spend all this time trying to make this wholesome, kid friendly stuff, and then. You know, the day those kids wrap their first thing, they like take their clothes off and pose in Maxim. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all just become like filthy whores <laughs> the next day. So this would just, this would just be 
speeding that along. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 basically <clears throat> it's not just diving in. It's yeah. just like you're you're easing people into that right. process. We're just what a fucked up life. I mean, like what a fucked up thing to have to for for a kid who's so struggling with their identity that they have to be like, oh, I have to let everyone know I'm an adult now by showing them my adult tits, my adult parts, my adult parts. You think I'm a kid? If does a kid have these? <laughs> yes, you start getting those yeah, at like fourteen. Kinda. You're yeah. still a kid. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. It is something. Are how. you ever going to let your kids in the entertainment business before they're old enough to make their own decision? You know, that's the thing. Is like, there. I did school plays, and I went to like a summer camp that had theater stuff in it, like a here in Southern California. I I would always encourage that if they're into it. I would never like make them do it, but uh, but no. In terms of like getting an agent before right. they were eighteen, driving no. around to auditions and shit. No, I really wanted to be performing when I was younger. My mother kind of didn't want to push me into that direction. Kind of thought it was a little bit gross. But there was this one audition we heard about that was coming to town. It was called Kids of the Century. Uh, what? That's right. What? And I was like, Mom. I- when is this ever going to happen again? It's a whole century. <laughs> um, and so she let me go on this audition and I went on it and you had to like dance. They taught you a choreographed number. So I was wearing like these plasticky dance pants. Those, it looks like when you're heavy in the fifties, they put you in plastic gear. So you sweat <laughs> and uh, you had to learn a dance combination and you had to sing a little song and do a monologue. And you went from room to room as they did these little activities. And I remember I did the monologue did the dance. I was like, yeah, man, I got this. And I went up to the piano when they were doing the singing part and I could see they had my sheet of paper up on the board on the piano bench. And I was like trying to sneak a peek and she kept jotting down notes as I was singing and doing it. She walked away for a second and I leaned in and read the writing. And I was like, Oh, it said, um, funny has weight problem. Tone deaf. Oh my god! It was insane. How old are you at this point? Oh, I must have been about thirteen. So the most impressionable you can be about yourself. Crushing. Yeah, it was like the worst thing ever. Oh my god! Nothing came of it. All I got out of it was like, I'm funny. I have a weight problem and I'm tone deaf, which stuck with me for. Oh my god! So just like you're shutting your eyes for the next twenty years, just seeing that red lettering. Hilarious. God damn it. Hilarious. I mean, but you know, (laughs) if anything, if anything about that kicked you into comedy, does that? Yeah. I I was like, all right, well, she says I can't sing. I'm fat. I guess I can't dance. I guess it's comedy. That's all we got left. (laughs) Oh, God damn it. That's so terrible. Isn't that great? What, what, what is a kid of the century, by the way? Uh, yeah, we, none of us ever heard from that organization again so i don't even know that anything happened from it feels Who knows like what it was? a weird like who's who in american high schools where it's like you it's like they would audition people and then go okay so if you want to be in this uh it's a thousand dollars you know which covers all of the i mean it sounds I don't know. scammy it, 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 i would have gotten in then wouldn't i have <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> there was something they were looking for no but you were really tone deaf though. yeah i was, was really really tone deaf. Deaf. no it, that really that was the worst of it i grew up thinking i could not sing and i had such a fear of singing and you know it wasn't until later that i just decided like whatever i'm just gonna sing anyway but that was um that was damaging. Oh my god. This is definitely a child's fragile sense of self 
really should not be anywhere near the entertainment business. I agree. I agree. It's it's hard enough. I see what my six year old goes through every day. Anyway, just just learning his way around kindergarten, figuring it all out. Some kids don't want to play with him one day. It crushes him. Doesn't understand it. And social media does not help that. No, thankfully we. I'm not dealing with any of that yet. Soon though. Yeah, I know, right? You got a couple of years. You got a couple of years below the radar. I guess so. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about the whole phone thing either. You know, people give their kids like they turn ten and they give them their own phone so they can know where they are. But yeah, like shouldn't you just know where they are? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, it's a lot of work. It's a lot right? of work, Forstein. You take them to school. It's you a lot of work. Pick them up. Yeah. They're not driving at that point. I don't yeah, know. Then you got to pay attention to them and give a shit. And it's, it's like if you're losing track of your fucking kids, then you have a larger problem. If you care that much, then just uh, then just chip your kids like you do your cat. Just That's like what stick I think. a chip behind their neck. They'll never know. Just like total recall them up the nose. Yeah. Yeah, just jam. That's right. <laughs> we could just put it lightly under the skin, but we're going to jam a probe in your in your sinus cavity. I, I had nightmares after seeing that scene. Oh, is that? And if you watch now, the effects are just okay. I know. Where it's like you could, it's like they've attached the where he's got this like ah, like it's the weird rubber when, head when he falls down on Mars with the lack of lack of oxygen and he's going. Ah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I am suffocating. His eyes are auga. Yep. doing like 1940s cartoon eyes. Well, Ronnie Cox really gets it the most. Like his <laughs> eyes just explode out of his head into these like these these weird cones. Don't you miss that Schwarzenegger? I I miss the I miss that era of of weird. Um, when they discovered that you could take an action star and start putting him in dystopian, not-too-distant-future storylines, that was so up my alley. I enjoyed that as well. When I was growing up, so up my alley. And Michael Ironside, who who played Richter in that, mm-hmm. he was just on the podcast last week. And Kyle and Katie will tell you, he was fucking amazing. Oh. Like the sweetest, most eloquent, wonderful... Oh, now I feel like mine's not going that well. What? <laughs> no, it's going fine. I feel like... Don't... Do Kyle's notes like, say tone I feel like deaf. you brought that up to shame me or something. No, I, I just wanted you to know what it could be like. Okay. If you were Michael Ironside. Okay. But you're not. I mean, he's... I'm more like the three-titted woman. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was awesome. What are you talking about? The three-titted woman was red. That's all I got. No, I don't have anything either. What about the guy with the crazy hand, the cab driver? I enjoyed that. that honestly, that movie is one of those, you know, if, at Family Guy, we all knew Star Wars backwards and forwards. We all could quote blah, 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 blah. But Total Recall, that, that was like a subset of the set. There, That's right. That, that we, we, we were very drawn to that. You film. have to, it's a specific, it's a very specific film. I mean, like people do know it. I didn't see the remake. I did not either. I couldn't bring you myself can't. to do it. I couldn't do it. You can't do that. I can't. I don't think I'm going to be able to see Annie either. It's going to be hard. Yeah, because I, you know, weirdly, I don't know why, when I was a kid, I just loved comedy and sci-fi. But for some reason, I watched Annie a lot, and I don't know why. Because it was probably like she was your age, maybe? Yeah, I guess so. It's like your contemporary up there doing doing a little business on the screen. I guess so. Didn't we have a long rant once, Kyle, about Daddy Warbucks basically being like a robber baron? We sure did. And that there's no way that he was not just an evil industrialist. 
Oh, yeah. And a who- Nazi sympathizer, I think. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. man has war in his name. Oh, yeah. He was right up there with Ford. <laughs> he was a uh, good businessman. <laughs> but, yeah. Not so, so, how does. So, so, let's leave a child in his care. Yeah. And not only that, <laughs> so let's assume. So uh, let's assume that, you know, Annie starts to. It'd be fun to check in with Annie, like, in the 50s. Yeah, it would, right? Where she's like. She's starting to does, does she take over the company and what does she do with it and does she is she, does she learn uh does she basically learn you know how to be evil These are all she does she become Ann Coulter Yeah yeah These are all good questions These are all good questions These are I I think it would be really- Ann Coulter is a grown up Annie Annie guys Annie guys. it's right there you guys I would break into song but I don't know if you can afford it <laughs> no we can you can <laughs> yeah we just uh, we just connected the dots that's a, that's a pretty incredible connection point right Weird. there but I really love that but so yeah the reboots the reboots really have to really have to stop I think it's hard I think any of the reboots probably stand on their own just fine someone's seeing it a kid now just anything that's for me held such an important spot in my childhood, it's, it's hard to it's hard to open up to a new version. And then that's when you start sounding like an old person. You're like, you kids don't understand the I original. Know. And they're like, we don't give a shit. I try not to crap on it, though. If my kid wants to see it, we'll, you know, we'll see it. Yeah. But uh, I try not to be too curmudgeon Then you're probably going to watch the reboot of Annie, then. I probably will. Maybe it's delightful. Yeah, I, we'll see. <laughs> sure Although, it's... it's sort of hard to top, like... Carol Burnett, Carol Burnett, Albert Finney, Albert Finney, and um, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Tim Curry, Tim Curry, Bernadette Peters. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, That's pretty good. I think so too. Who did you when I you love were, Bernadette Peters? Who did, you, did, who did you identify with the most when you were growing up? Which performers did you identify with? I used to pray that. I was adopted, and my real parents were Gilda Radner and Steve Martin. Oh, of course. That's, I was in love with both of them, and memorized all their material. And but I, I love Madeline Kahn too, and Peter Sellers. Um, those were kind of the big, the big ones. I, I never really liked anyone that was young or new, or you know what I mean. I always yeah. kind of liked people that were at a much. Yeah, me too. And and Madeline and Gilda both. Snuffed out it, entire like decades before. The, oh, I mean, yeah. so sad. So I mean, I also like Barbara Streisand. I also you know, funny girl, and she was definitely someone that didn't look the way other people were f- forced to look in most movies, and so I kind of related to that. And, and there was something. And she also didn't talk the way most people talked in those movies. No, it was it was a good like she she was funny. She was genuinely funny. Really funny. Still is really funny. Really great timing. Smart perfectionist, um, so yeah, I kind of those were I think the greatest hits. And, and at a certain point, did you start to feel like, oh, oh, I think I'm, I'm actually a comedy person that other people are watching, as opposed to just you being a kid. It's like, at what point do you stop being the kid that you were in your head, you know? And like, oh, I don't. I mean, I don't know if at any point if... Never, I guess. No, never? I'm staring at you blankly. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, I don't, I, it's, it still feels like you're just kind of making things up as you go along, don't really know what you're doing, and are still that kid. Does that answer the question? It does, but then also at a certain point, you know, as a parent, you do have to, you do have to kind of like, no, I, I know how this stuff works, even though you, you have to fake it sometimes, right? Absolutely. All the time. <laughs> All the time. You know, you're making up rules as a parent constantly that make no sense, and each one contradicts the last one you just made. Why can is I, that? We get in the car. Can I watch Can I watch Word World or whatever the hell it is in the car? You know, there's little screens. And the, yeah. No, no, no. We're just doing a quick trip. We don't need to watch anything. We can talk. We can do anything. You know, then get, get in the same trip going back from school. Can we watch? Okay. <laughs> sure. I turn it on. You know, it's, I, I'm incredibly inconsistent and whatever whatever works best for everyone in the situation so there's that's that's the number one rule they say with your kids you you have to provide consistency so i guess i'm failing miserably or you're just consistently inconsistent with them there so you go. it's like that's that actually is working thank you <laughs> i feel better i don't know yeah i i if my kids got into doing this or being you know i see that i see my son enjoys he sees if I make people laugh and he enjoys trying to do that himself. You know, he came to the set at getting on and we were filming this scene with a small animal. Okay. I will say that to not give anything away. And, you know, he watched me just have to do this take, this reaction to the animal. And it was, that's all I did. There was no words. I just leaned my head into frame and had to make a face. And he was by the monitor with the producers and people watching and, Everybody broke into laughter after I did it, and he—that was the first real shocker form of like, this is so weird. This is what you do. You make funny faces and do weird <laughs> things and try to get people to laugh, and you see him try to emulate that. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, and you got to be careful too, because I, I would imagine anything you say in front of your kids, it just any offhanded comment could all of a sudden be cemented with them as like, this is law. Yeah. It's, it's, I have a real hard time like curbing my language, too. I try really hard. Um, but it slips, especially if I'm upset or angry or scared, or if one of them almost falls, I can't help it. I of always cuss, yep. and, which I love that word, cuss. Um, it's so southern. It's cuss. But then they repeat it and tell you for the next four hours, you said the S word. I know I did. I apologize. You said it. I know I did. <laughs> But I heard you say it. I know I said it. I'm sorry. Mommy was very scared. Mommy didn't mean to. I apologize. I heard, uh, I heard my dad use the word, the term jerk off once. Not in relation to anything that he was doing. But just like he called someone a jerk off in traffic or something. <laughs> and I was probably like, um, I don't know, maybe like ki- kindergarten probably. And I was in, I was in a carpool, and then they they were they were dropping me off, and I dropped my bag, and I uttered this phrase, and so the other parents are behind me, and my mom's in front of me, and so everyone's just present for it, and I just see the look of utter horror on my mom's face because I didn't I actually thought I do remember the feeling of. I'm using grown-up words. I had no right. idea what it meant. I just but did thought, you say it in reference, like the bag dropped and you went, jerk off bag? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was like, ah, you jerk off. Like, it was sort of, like, I must have sounded like a construction worker in kindergarten. And if to, but so to me, it was just like, that's the thing you say, like that rule had, yeah. 
And so my parents, I feel like, I feel like what happens a lot, I assume with parenting is you're trying to explain to a child who is, is using very basic logic. You said this in a situation there, therefore transitively. Mm -hmm. And it's just the parents explaining a lot of exceptions to the rule. Well, yes. But you don't want to do that at school. (laughs) Why not? Because it's not appropriate. What does appropriate mean? Fuck. You said fuck. <laughs> I know. Like, it's a lot of that. G- Im- improv is yes and, but I feel like parenting is yes but. Yeah. it's Yes a lot but. Of, uh... There's a lot of that. <laughs> the, the, one of my favorites, though, was, you know, you can you can try to get them off track and, and fool them sometimes, which is awesome. So we were driving, and I called someone a douchebag. <laughs> And he was like, what's a douchebag? I said, no, I said juice bag. Nice. So now he will say that. Oh, that guy's being a real juice bag. That's- and, it's, and I laugh so hard. And he's pleased because he thinks he's doing it. And a juice bag. I love it. It's, it's going to bring a lot of confusion if he's in the wrong aisle. I know, right. And buys the wrong thing. Hey, they're all fluids. I mean, you know. I have to imagine a Capri Sun could clean down there just as well. <laughs> or a treetop apple juice box. Yeah. Either way. Just getting the straw ends tougher, that's all. <laughs> it's all been... It's all the same. Natural cleansing agent. So that's the other thing, is if you could take a Capri Sun commercial, but have it be about a douche. I love and it. just that same kind of like ban in a bear or like guitar riffs and well, it could just be kind of like my kids work hard all day playing and I work hard all day working and sometimes we both lose some steam and feel not so fresh. <laughs> well, now there's new Capri Sun douche juice <laughs> handles both tropical spring break scent comes with a straw or a little hose. Now, it, okay, so this is a little. It's actually not off topic at all. If douching is so bad for people, why is it still something that is available? I think should a woman find herself post-infection, mm-hmm. post-something, someone nasty that's been down there or something, yeah. maybe maybe it's a nice feeling. Okay. Or post something awful or traumatic. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, as it, it might be a nice feeling to feel like you can take that step and do that. But I think under normal circumstances, it's a self-cleaning organ. Yeah, and that you should just let it let it be. let it ride. I mean, bathe, ladies. Go ahead and bathe. <laughs> but soap is fine. But um, but yeah. Maybe don't pass. <laughs> <laughs> I like that douche has really just become... I, I remember the the transition of douche into the vernacular. I remember a period where douche You remember was, the day it happened? I remember, well, I remember <laughs> the first time someone said it to me, and then all of a sudden, it was just, it was just part of the vernacular. I like it. It's a good word, especially if you're writing for television, network television, and you you're very say, limited. Can you say douche on television? I think you can't. You know... Depends on the time something airs. Family Guy, for instance, we right. can say douchebag. Sometimes it's just so nice because you feel like you're actually saying something that has some meat to it. Right. Um, although you never know. Like with, with Family Guy, freaking sweet became this huge, you know, I don't know, catchphrase or whatever for the first five years of the show because we couldn't say fucking sweet or we couldn't say fucking and everything was freaking. Right. Are you weirded out that there are like porn versions online of Family Guy? 
You know, I, I don't care. The only time it ever gets slightly uncomfortable is any time I go to do morning radio. The DJs like to point it out and show it to me. Well, they show it to you. They're like, have you seen this? Click. They've got it all, you know. I know, but a lot of them are slowly dying inside. <laughs> and a lot of them are just husks of their former selves. I think it's interesting. I think it's a little sad in the amount of time people have and what they choose to creatively do with it. <laughs> but <laughs> but Lois looks good. I mean, you know, it's not unflattering in any way to me. It's not a actual screen grab of me, so I don't know. Do you take her personally at this point, or is she still like, yeah, she's a character? Like, how, 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 how much do you connect with, like, when you're locked into a character, how much do you connect with it as part of yourself? I try to be protective of her in some ways. There's, when I was there and, and in the room a lot, it was, you know, it was so natural just to be able to pitch in her voice and say, oh, well, yeah, we have a real douchebag or whatever it was, and then you know, it could go, you know, not being able to be there to kind of protect the language she gets to use sometimes as a drag. But if there's something I hate in the booth, I'll say, come on, she, she'd say this, this goes kind of goes against everything we've done, you know, but, um, but I definitely, there's times where she ends up having to be more of a wet blanket than, than I'd like her to be. Do you, do you riff much in the booth or is it like, this is pretty much every once in a while, but pretty much it's cause I know Sometimes we'll do a take of something where I, I goof around with it, but they've spent, you know, every episode takes nine months to make. Right. Every script is broken, the idea is broken, then someone takes it away and does an outline, and then there's notes in the outline, and they sometimes redo it, or they go straight to script. Then after the script comes in, they tear it apart, rewrite it for days, sometimes weeks. We have a table read, tear it apart after the table, rewrite it again from there. So knowing what goes into it before you're recording it, you're kind of a douchebag if you're saying, I think I know better. Of so you what guys will. don't, you can't, it would be impossible for you guys to record as a group. We used to. In the beginning, we tried doing it like a radio play, and it was really fun, but really ineffective. Um, and now, with everyone's schedules, it's like Mila's a movie star. Seth Green has 40 shows. McFarlane is directing Ted 2. Before that, A Million Ways to Die. I'm doing Getting On. and So it's it's impossible with schedules to try to everyone's doing really well knock on wood baby that's it's pretty rare is family guy just uh, picked up forever like is it just one of those shows where it's like oh yeah it's just like it just goes and goes and goes and goes i hope so (laughs) i mean y'all heard my furniture story um i you know seth and everyone is you know steve callahan at the helm and he's doing it with rich appel he's show running and Every writer in the room wants to do it so long as it's funny. And if yeah. they're still, it sounds hokey, but every table read, we're still laughing out loud genuinely. And everyone kind of feels like so long as that keeps happening, we'll keep wanting the show in the air. And Seth does not want it to just get super shitty and go out that way. Right. Um, but so long as I think the quality maintains the level that it's at, I think these new scripts are really fucking funny. So. I think we're in good shape. We should do, um, we should do, uh, well, I mean, if you guys want to do it, we should do like a Family Guy episode of At Midnight. I think that'd be really fun to have you guys on panel. Have everybody on? Well, just three, three of you and then That's get fun. walk-ons like for people, because only three people play at a time. But That's every- fun. I, yep, I meant stack it with yeah, all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stack yeah. it with, every, like, with people from the show. That's funny. I think it'd be really fun. If people would do it. The schedule wise, again, of like course. that's the thing. We we want to do another. We would do the Family Guy live shows where we go around and 
we do a live reading and then we sing a bunch of the songs from the show and do a lot of really filthy versions of things that could never make it to air. And we want to do another one of those. We keep talking about London, but we can't. What's an example of a really filthy thing that might not make it Oh, well. I mean, what what did you guys do? We would sing filthy versions of songs that I shouldn't, I I don't want to give that away, right? If we do the show again, it kind of blows (laughs) it, doesn't it? But it, but just like a nugget to tempt people into writing their congressman to have it be the state hmm. play. Hmm. What could I share? What could I share that wouldn't happen again? No, there's nothing. There's nothing I could share that won't ruin it. So if people want to see it, they should go see it live, provided that all of your schedules work. Yeah. And this actually does pan out. At some yes. Point. I mean, we also do, we, there's some like scenes that were, the, the way that the live shows first started, the first one we did was the show that they didn't want to air called When You Wish Upon a Weinstein. Mm-hmm. And it was, they were too scared to do it because they thought it was slamming Jewish people and they were afraid that it was too anti-Semitic. And, and then another one that we did was um, Partial Terms of Endearment. Uh-huh. That was like abortion-themed episode. And so a lot of those were kind of developed thinking, we'll just do these for the live shows and then DVDs and stuff like that. So there are things like that. How many times a week do people ask you to leave their outgoing message on their phone? Um, quite a few. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. And now, now I do it as an auction item. Like, so if uh, yeah. at charity events, like I'm, I'm involved with the National Hemophilia Foundation, or if someone else says, oh, can you donate something? I'll say, I'll do a, a voice message or something like that. Because then it, then it kind of works. You get like the people who most, I find most people that stop you on the street and want something from you, aren't even big fans. They just want to see if they can control you like a puppet? They're just shit collectors. They're the type of people that take chocolates from the hotel. You know, (laughs) the the maid cart is there, and they grab another fucking shampoo. They never use it at home. They're just shit takers. Right. That's what I find. Most people are like, oh, can I get a picture with you, man? Oh, yeah. And they're never going to look at it. They don't care. (laughs) They don't know your name. Um. So I feel like then you, you kind of someone's gonna bid on that at an auction. It's it's worth everyone's it's special. time. They're super excited. And it's about for it. a good cause. Yeah, it's kinda nice. That's good. So as we're wrapping down, uh, is there anything you want to tell people about getting on to for anyone who hasn't seen the show? What's your what's your pitch to people for watching the show? Oh shit. Um Getting on. Let's see. T- getting on is a television program on HBO. I'm describing it. Television yeah, is is uh, a way of getting entertainment but into your home. But it's not TV, Alex. It's HBO. That's so true. Yeah. Um, you can you can watch these things alone or with friends. With friends. How am I doing? It's good so far. Um, it's a show with Laurie Metcalf, Nisi Nash, and me, and Mel Rodriguez, and we play nurses and a doctor in a very run-down geriatric wing, all-female geriatric wing of a hospital in Long Beach, a fictional hospital in Long Beach, which sounds so depressing, <laughs> but I don't know how, but somehow it's really funny, but it has a lot of really touching moments. It's A lot of people don't want to... Uh, a lot of people say it sounds depressing and it's something I don't want to look at, and, and I kind of say it's it's almost like a car wreck. Mm-hmm. It's It's highly entertaining. You can't take your eyes off of it. It's tragic. It kind of has you shocked in some moments, touched in others, and and laughing 
I don't know. It's, it's, it hits a tone that I haven't seen before in a lot of TV shows. And it's one of my favorite things about doing it is each script, you're kind of on a roller coaster of, of things that you're getting to do. Well, I'm glad that you're working. I mean, it sounds like you're working on a bunch of fun stuff that you like doing. And I think that's the most that you can ask for in the business. In any business. It's, this is so rare. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to be doing this. It's, to have Family Guy, and I, I am the luckiest woman in baseball. <laughs> this is not baseball. What? You're not playing baseball no. anymore. No, it just, it is. It's so rare to get, I get the material handed to me. I read the script, and I'll go on to do a, a scene in the show and, and get it wrong, like, 80% of the time. And I'm not seeing, like, 14 other layers that are there. And it's, it's just really rich. And it's not so much what's there on the page. It's also what's not there. So you're left struggling to figure it out on the set. And I think that's what makes the most interesting moments on the show that it's so uncomfortable. The audience doesn't know how to feel. It's because we don't know how to feel. And, and you can kind of see it on everyone's faces. Well, I mean, I think that's when I think, I think that's one of the ways when, when comedy is working at its best is when it's forcing people to sort of face something uncomfortable, but very human Yeah, and be able to sort of, um, to be able to extract, I mean, it's not that you're laughing at, just sort of laughing at humanity and how ridiculous. And death, I mean, we're all going to die. Everyone's yeah. got a mom, and this show is mom's dying. I mean, this is the hardest thing there is. And for me, when I lost my grandmother, it was so hard. And there's so many moments on the show that bring me back to the, It was awful, it was dark, but it was also hilarious. Like, my grandmother kept telling when I would show up to visit her, she'd say, there is a man in the night who is dancing with me. And I was like, what are you talking about? No one's dancing with you, Grandma. What? Somebody is dancing with me. And it was this giant black male nurse that would pick her up so they could change the bedding and change Aww. the sheets. But it was whole, like she That's was convinced really this dude's making a pass every night. <laughs> He's picking me up and dancing with me. And some morning she loved it. It was like, I danced. I was dancing all night. And, and it was... It was heartbreaking, but hilarious and warm. And, you know, her teeth were missing. Many, we didn't, teeth weren't by the bedside in the morning, and we'd be on a hunt for her teeth. And <laughs> what the hell did she do with them? You know, it was, <laughs> and the show just really captured it. The two showrunners dealt with their mom's slow deaths. And so it's written from a real, a real place and real heart. And I think that's important. You know, I think it's important to, be able to, I mean, cause I think it, it gives you at least what little, even if it's an illusion, just a little bit of power, a feeling like we have mm -hmm. a power over something by being able to point and go, this is fucking horrible. So we have to make fun of it because if we don't, we'll just kill ourselves now. I think so. I mean, that's, isn't that why we all got into comedy? I, I think so. Oh, I think also a broken need for attention. Right. Also that, that, that too. There's that. There's that too. But I like the altruistic approach as well. I don't know. We're making lemonade. Out <laughs> of yeah. lemons. I think, uh, I, I don't know. I think you, 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 if you, if you don't force yourself to look at the stuff that's difficult to watch, you're going to miss some ama amazing stuff that's mixed in there. Well, as we're wrapping up, I'm sorry that you don't know the name of the woman who uh, wrote Tone Deaf on your piano sheet, so we couldn't track her down on Facebook. And That would be awesome. Anyone out there knows Kids of the Century? Uh, let me know. What, did you look it up? Did you, can you... Katie's oh. looking it up right now. Kids of the Century. Kids of the Century. Just find and all those was, people were arrested. Uh, 
about 86. What'd you get? They saw him from some German metal band. <laughs> was it a German metal production? It was not. Okay. Uh, because in that case, tone deaf would probably be a compliment. That's right. And maybe that's like, oh, she's a perfect. And maybe it was like tonadnif. Tonadnif is good. It's a whole other word. She's good. It means exquisite. She needs to be able to howl in German. Uh, nothing. Yeah, it was probably. I, I'm, always disappointed when thi- I'm always disappointed when things somehow just miss the internet. Like, no, everything's on the internet. It's a sum total I, of human knowledge. I bet what it was was they were looking for kids to do, they were trying to make a pilot TV show. I bet that's, it was for a pilot show or something that never happened or something. All right, Kids of the Century is the internet's um, <laughs> mission to find that and post it on the uh, on the podcast page, and uh, and then we can see if we can track this person down and let me, and you'll let me know. Yeah, so you can okay. go just beat the shit out of this woman who's probably very frail now. Uh, I can get the Nerdist app, and it will just it mm-hmm. will alert when you've discovered the information. That's right. Yeah, okay. it'll it'll let you know. It's uh, it's basically helps you seek revenge for uh, childhood wrongings. Oh, I like it. Yeah, that's actually a great idea for an app. <laughs> it gives you all the info for anyone who bullied you when you were younger, so you can because then you look at him now and you're like, ah, that guy turned out shitty. <laughs> it's, called, it's just called the Bully Finder. Bully Finder, Bully Finder. Yeah, I love it. Every person who like knocked you down, you're like, the guy's got no hair. Big big old tub of shit now. I'm I'm gonna start working on that immediately. We're gonna make this happen. Alex Borstein, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Enjoy Breed Everyone. The end. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts